0: Stephen's got wonderful headset. He's got this lip mic, professional lip mic. I've got a reasonable microphone, but it's not up to date. Hugh has got something that we've somebody got, in a 1980s we,
1: lounge, a Tony Bennett. He hasn't even got a, a sponge me cover on it. Let me play amongst. You've got exactly the same microphone as me. It's just that you've got a windshield, a pop shield on it. That's the only difference. Well, where's your? Pop shield. Well, Stephen, when he got his free microphone, obviously also commandeered a pop shield, whereas when I got my free microphone, I didn't think to do that. Although, looking at the state of Stephen's pop shield, I imagine that it could be garnered for free from some sort of skip.
2: It has been in the bottom of a bag for quite a long time. Does
1: it have grit on it?
2: Yeah, prob- like leftover bits of food have <laughs> probably a... accumulated in it, you know, the crumbs. Grit is from... rhyming slang
1: for... No, no, no grits <laughs> is rhyming grit.
0: grit. Actual grit.
2: If you could be more disciplined with the microphone, you wouldn't need the pop shield, Chinch, but we just can't trust you not to say toast, toast "Toast," all the time. I
1: am disciplined in so many areas. Well done on swallowing that P for the disciplined. Disciplined. Otherwise disciplined. What? Disciplined. I softened it, didn't I? Did I? I thought I did. You are a natural broadcaster. Thanks. This is Set Piece Bernie, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. The food is Welsh cake's Cakes from Wales that are called Welsh cakes. These are, if you're not particularly familiar with Welsh cakes, they're basically flattened scones or scones, depending on how posh you consider yourself. Um, And they have been dusted with icing sugar and then topped, as is traditional, by jam, which has been made by my dear mother. Well, two-thirds of
0: this group had the jam. Steve, however. Steve, the face heap. I've never seen anybody
1: respond... So badly to a pot of strawberry jam. He he looked my mother in the face and he said, No, Viv, no jam, even your jam. He poked her in the eye. Yes, not even figuratively. He literally travelled the 200 plus miles that it would take to get to my mother. He poked her in the eye, got back in the car, came back up again, and then still said, No jam, thanks, it's lubrication.
2: Viv knows and likes me well enough. She won't now I have to prove myself to her by eating her jam.
0: Yeah, but if she sees the face that you pulled, you react badly to general jams. I'll be honest with you, my, my mother's
1: entire well-being is based on how many people eat her jams, her pickles and her chutneys. So, um, Steve, you may have had high esteem, but that esteem has now evaporated completely. When like the Welsh cakes, which were mm. hoovered up by Messrs Hinchcliffe mm. and Wyeth. So. When, we
2: were, when we were kids, we had a, a lady who lived about three doors down from us who, like Viv, made lots of jams, chutneys, etc. for charity. And we called her Mrs Chutney. We didn't know her real name. She was Mrs. Chutney to us.
0: Do you think she's a listener? Mrs. Chutney or, yeah. or Viv? Uh, is Viv? Viv clearly has to be a listener well, she, because she I'm a, on. a
1: weekly dose of chinch. Con- Mrs. Chutney maybe?
2: No, considering how old Mrs. Chutney was when I was about 10 years old, I, suge- I would suggest she's not a listener to anything. Either. Oh, okay.
1: Uh, joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth of This Parish and Andy Hinchcliffe of A Posher Parish. Uh, Rory Smith is currently in the not-so-sweet spot between a family holiday and embarking for the Champions League final fund that he's inevitably going to have in Madrid. But we will have a contribution from him nevertheless a little bit later on. We mentioned last week that we are becoming a little bit better at pre-production, thinking ahead, and we've done it two weeks in a row. How many episodes have we done? This is number 131. And only now? Only now. We've got you can get in touch with the podcast at Setpeacemenu, setpiecemenu at gmail.com or on Facebook. Just search for Set piece Menu. Firstly, thanks to all of those who have been tweeting and emailing about the piece about clubs on social media that was written by Paul McInnes in The Guardian, which had this very satisfying sentence. The first Premier League club to tweet were Everton, who on the 10th of December 2008 posted this piece of engaging content. Watch former Blues defender Ray Attervelt's exclusive interview with Everton TV. Available now. I bet that interview lasted about 15 seconds before he punched <laughs> the interviewer in the face and then stormed <laughs> off. There's been a lot of Ray Attervelt content on our own social media feeds over the last few days. Thank you very much indeed. I'm a little indeed. bit concerned
2: actually that we might be becoming a, a bit of a one Ray Attervelt trick pony <laughs> in terms of our social media content.
1: Chinch, did Ray Attervelt have a trick? um was it just
0: shooting a pony it was (laughs) what he was very good at was 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 elbow you in the face when you least expected it
1: aaron lovegrove has got in touch to say this hello chaps i've just finished the full back catalogue and i'd like to thank you for keeping me sane while i've been at home on my own on gardening leave firstly i'd like to add to the list of low-key footballing joys remember that episode number 51 prior to the Football killjoys banning anything other than straight lines. I truly loved the last day of the season when the groundsmen were allowed to cut an extravagant pattern into the pitch. A design I imagine they had been drawing up in their sheds since Christmas.
0: So Aaron's listened to every single... So he's saying that kept him
1: sane. (laughs) What mental state is he in now, having listened to all of them? He's in the same mental state as my mother, getting the weekly dose Mm. of chinch. Um, Finally, Simon Anderson writes, Hi folks, great listen again this week. I just wanted to drop you a quick email to point out something to Hugh... Normally, these would get immediately deleted. However, Simon goes on. Early on in the podcast, this is last uh, week's 130th edition. He mentioned that we already had had stadium porn on the podcast. And now, perhaps, after our conversations about goal nets, we had net porn. I think it should be noted that since the invention of the internet, net porn has been pretty widely available. Just saying, says Simon. Perhaps in future, Hugh should clarify and change his term to goal net porn to avoid any ambiguity and getting your podcast classified as anything that isn't family friendly. Keep up the good work, Dr. Simon and Harrogate. But will it get us more
0: listeners if we <laughs> left it the way that it was? Well, I'm not going to go back and change it so uh, people can make up their own minds. Can't we, is, is there not a pod in the greatest goal
1: nets of all time? You suggesting that flippantly I love, a few weeks ago. I love goal nets and standards led to a deluge of people supporting the idea for a podcast, which we never promised, even though they think we did.
0: I I did. I had a couple of texts myself. When I mentioned the word stanchion, it seemed to, again, strikes a chord with people out there. But the the gold nets are great. Well, some aren't. Some aren't, like the West Ham one, the trampoline net, where it pings back out when it's got... You want, if you're a goal sc- you know, I didn't score that many goals. Keepers made great saves generally when I shot. Um, but when you, s- you wanted that ball to go in the net and stay there, to basically emphasise the point, I have scored. At West Ham, if you smacked it in, it rebounded out, or the Dell, it rebounded out. And it was like, it's gone in, but the
1: ball's not like stayed in the net. So it's a goal, but it's not a proper goal, is it? The two contributions last week uh, in your absence, Chinch, were uh, these, Bari... In the mid-1990s, which Rory was very much on side with, they were deep- Barry and, Island. And they had hexagonal shapes in it rather than any other shape. I don't agree with hexagonal shape. netting. And also, uh, the idea of having no nets whatsoever, so when a goal is scored, you just get two green lights, VAR and gold line technology Got to, to have No, no,
0: no, 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 no. Because when you're a kid and you're out playing on the local field, you craved, you craved, okay, you had lots of these kind of municipal fields had posts didn't they but But you need yeah because the nets would get stolen so uh, I think local fishermen tended to steal them but the thing is you you need nets you need nets for a goal as a kid you need nets and I actually I think we talked about having stanchions I put metal poles in there as stanchions and you try and hit the stanchion which with my left foot opening can of beans
1: I tend to do quite regularly setpiecemenu at gmail.com and also at Menu on Twitter now our conversation today centres on something that's not happening very much at the moment and that's training Mick Kane. Writes this to menu at gmail.com. Dear Messrs Ferris, Hinchcliffe, Smith and wife, with apologies for the alphabetical accident of the names of your parents. I write as a latecomer to the SPM party, with the 2018-19 season being my first full season, and this my maiden email to you. Perhaps I am a half warthog, he suggests. Mm. I believe we footy fans are privileged at present to have such extensive access to live games with our understanding then enhanced both visually and audibly through a multitude of camera angles and the wisdom of commentators, analysts, and even, in rare circumstances, co-commentators. However, what I remain intrigued by and mostly ignorant of is a part of our beautiful game to which we are not privy, operatives of Bielsa apart, Mm. i.e. that which occurs on the training ground. As a close contemporary in age of the seven-capped one, I have a vague Saturday morning TV memory involving Jack Charlton educating some apprentices with basic drills and grumpy abuse. (laughs) But this must be far removed from the kind of short and long-term work undertaken by the successful modern manager. So from a new boss turning up on day one, how exactly, asks Mick, is this process undertaken? It's not too difficult to imagine the practicing of set pieces, but what of molding the general framework for open play and the specifics of, say, collective targeted pressing? How is the daily work time actually spent? In addition, I'm also interested in the human dynamics of the training squad. You might only have to battle it out with any given opponent on a couple of occasions a year, yet must deal with your teammates almost daily. To refer back to Sir Chinch, his early days at Manchester City must have had him rubbing training ground shoulders, to say nothing of deep heat, with several <laughs> luminaries who would clatter all over the glorious spectrum of no-nonsense hard men to football bad boys. Gentlemen who, from the outside at least, did not appear to possess the refined subtleties of your 21st century attabags and attahouses. houses. I offer up Jerry Taggart, Brian Gale, Mick McCarthy, Gary Megson, Robert Hopkins, Mark Ward and the Niels McNabb and Lennon to name but more than a half dozen. Mm. To what extent would training sessions then and now be an aggressive battleground where an alpha male hierarchy would be forged and defended with words and deeds? And how might an up and coming fullback, albeit one with a Swiss army knife for a left foot, have responded (laughs) and adapted to such an environment? Any thoughts and insights will be most welcome. Please keep up the good work in your entertaining and thought-provoking way. With the warmest of regards, Mick Kane. So normally I would pray see what we'll be asking in a natty and succinct way, but really what more to add? Mick has done it all. Mm. Let us talk about training. What happens in the sessions? How long-term and short-term goals are achieved? And if anyone gets into fights? Oh, look, I did it anyway. So, Chinch, let us talk about training. Well, things...
0: I can only obviously my experience is, is vast and very important and I can speak with great authority on this <laughs> subject um, that's what you were probably thinking um, <laughs> that, that I is, started that
1: is a of 130 episodes yeah,
0: as a kid as a kid because you at school um, it maybe is different now for kids so I, I had no formal coaching when I was a, a kid from kind of 10 years old I played regular games at the weekend but I, we didn't have any formal coaching um, a schoolboy forms at 14 again I was still at school so we played games for Man City we we're connected to Man City but 16 I was an apprentice who so actually joined the club and that's when you first experienced training and it seems to me looking back now obviously at the time you just feel this must be the cutting edge this is, this is absolutely right for 1985 or 6 whenever it was but then looking back and what I did later in, in my career working at Everton, because that's, that's the big, the, kind of the polar opposites when I started my career to working with the very best people at Everton when I was maybe 27, is that it basically seemed to be that they were just doing stuff that had been done for maybe 10, 15 years, even though kind of the generationally things were changing, players who'd maybe played in the last 10 years were becoming coaches. So they, you would think, would change things from how it would have maybe been 20, 30 years ago. But it seemed to be, on a Monday, you, you basically ran, simply went to, I remember Man City, we used to go to Whiddenshire Park and just run until we were sick on a Monday, even if we had a game on a Wednesday, and we played on a Saturday. But that was how it had been done in the past. So this is what we do. So there was basically they just seemed to be following the pattern of, of what had been before, not saying, well, hang on a minute, does this actually benefit us in any way from the game we've just played or the game we're going to play? Or do we just follow, well, it's Monday, this is what we do. There's no ball, we're just going to go and run around trees until players are sick because that's what you do on a Monday.
1: So in, in Rory Smith's excellent book, The Mister by E.L. James, um, he talks about the fact that for, for decades the, the, the training methods were simply... Running, yes, uh, improving physicality, being able to run for the match, and there was no, no, no not, cool run work. For, not run for the match, just basically run. run there was no specifics. Fitness. The
0: goalkeepers were doing the same as
1: the so, center forwards, there was no thought in wait a
0: minute, you, you're clearly going to run differently because of the positions that you play. We all do the same thing, we can all run faster or slower, maybe, but we're all going to run until we're in pre season. Was a classic example of this, was so just you're basically saying that- nine till four every day you hardly saw a ball for the first week you just ran constantly and were mainly sick every day and you think how on earth could you assess that and say this is this is because you're not actually getting yourself fitter to, to do your job because it's not specific and you're so exhausted from the previous day that you're just running on empty so it's not
1: actually probably getting you any fitter either so are you telling me that between the years of say 1920 1930 and the years of 1984 five that is one that you mentioned there, is, there was genuinely very little. Well, we can, we need to throw. What we, I'd
0: love to do is throw it out there for you know people that were around, were involved in the professional game, or, or played the game around that time. Again, all I can do is just, I'm, I'm presuming it might have been slightly different. But when I came into it in the mid '80s, this is how. It, it seemed to have been, and the game was played in a certain way. There wasn't that tactic, the, the nuance there, the kind of the tactic. It was four four two, very straightforward. This is football. So if this is football, this is the training that you do. This is the running that you do, basically. It wasn't training. We weren't really training for the games. The games didn't seem to have any bearing on what we did on any specific day. The games were where they were, and we just did what we did in between, because that's what had been done. But again, if we're taking it back to the 50s and 60s, did they do the same thing then? It'd be great if we could find out, people around that time involved in the game, what did what did you do if you were playing on a, a saturday or a wednesday what did you do on a monday or tuesday because what i did was run or what teams back then did on those days was simply run
1: so if you're playing on a saturday the monday after you would then run you'd have now, a sunday off come sunday in on the, off, monday, come on the monday yes run. so saturday following you've got your next game so after monday what did you then do tuesday wednesday thursday friday Well, basically there could have
0: been there normally was a game in in the midweek so you were probably playing on the tuesday or wednesday imagine in this example that you are not so you we're, were just not playing
1: Saturday, Saturday, but
0: again, there was no, because what, again, you've got to go back to say team selection and when teams were picked on a match day, coaches back then tended to pick the team an hour before the game. So if you're picking the team an hour before the game, you're not going to do something on a Wednesday or a Thursday with the team because you, you've selected the team then and you're planning for who you're going to play against, how you're going to play. There was none of that because the team would genuinely get picked. You train all week. Again, you do certain things like crossing and finishing or five-a-side stuff. But again, there didn't seem to be any thought about is this actually being put in place to set up the game that we've got coming? It didn't seem to be. There was no, there was no kind of thought in those days before we got to the to the match day on a Saturday. But then, so we basically trained as a squad. We didn't do any kind of shape or, or formation or this is going to be the team on a Thursday, which is, is what kind of changed when I went to Everton. The team was picked on a, on a Wednesday or a Thursday and we did plan for how we were going to play and what the opposition were going to do. So there's the huge difference is we, we kind of trained during the week and there would be, as you got close to a match day, you clearly wouldn't run as much. But there were certain things, well, we've got a couple of hours. Let's do what we would normally do. We'd kind of have a, a small-sided game. We might do some crossing, and finishing. But there was no kind of... Tactical stuff. No, well, let's set up the back four. Let's let's work because they, they didn't want to let people know who was playing until an hour before the actual game. So again, it, there was no. They didn't work backwards from the game and say how do how do we set things up for this? It was we'll just get
1: through those days. Whew, it's a match day an hour before it here's the team go out and play so if that that's the short term goal which is assen- essentially to do all those things before a game on a saturday mm-hmm. you, you you mentioned that footballs like this and it was 442 and it was never going to change so there was an what oh, is it was never going to change Sorry, I mean, there, was, there so at that time an, you didn't see an anything changing that there wasn't yeah, yeah. A, going to be a change so given that you you had no long term overarching goals either so for example we talked about it on the podcast when antonio conte moved to chelsea he had the opportunity because they weren't involved in european football to shape over long term using hours and hours of training them from a back four to a back three so they might not have necessarily immediately played the back three but over a period of time he was able to train them into the way that he wanted that back three to work so there were no long term goals that you had in your early career thinking well at some point maybe in about six months I'd like to be able to play in this way I would like to be able to develop my players so that they are able to do this better they, well, we, they didn't we, think about we that.
0: simply didn't play any other formation it's only I only started playing as a, a wing back when Joe Royal came to to, to Everton and then back threes were starting to come into the game because again tactics were starting to change the people who were getting the coaching jobs again a generational were, were thinking differently and they've been played in different countries where this was maybe more again I'm just saying this is what it was like in England at that time maybe in Italy in Spain were they playing back threes back fours back in the mid 80s I presume they probably were but they would probably be more tactically aware than the clubs that I played for it, it just that's how it was in the English game but then as time went by and different coaches came in and then maybe tactics were taken from abroad or those people came into the English game, that's when you see things start to change and then, right, we're going to play with wing-backs now in a back three. That was a massive, a huge change because I had not done that for 15 years. From a kid, I'd always played in the back four as a left back. So again, it's a, even in your 20s when you've had a lot of experience playing that way, to then change and then say, you're going to play 15 yards further forward. It's a, it's a massive change because you've not done it for something, You don't even had to think about what that might involve. And how so long you're having to learn very quickly. It's not something that's happened for the previous 10 years. And as a kid growing up, you've seen a exactly. back four and a back three. You haven't learned so anything. How long
1: did it take you from the day that Joe Royal and Willie Donaghy said, we're going to do this to feel comfortable? But they worked it. That's what
0: I'm saying. When you get people so like that. how long that, did they work it for? From the day they walked in. This is, this is the personnel that we've got. And obviously coaches at that time, weren't getting the freedom to say, well, I want to play this way, so we need those five out, bring five in. Clubs weren't doing that anymore. It was starting to say, well, this is what the kind of personnel that you've got. So they probably assessed what, what they had when they walked into Everton. The money wasn't there to change it all around, so they probably realised with the players we had, yeah, I'd be better playing as maybe a wing-back. We've got three centre-halves there we can probably use, and this would work well. But then what you have to do is say, right, if this is the way we're going to play, you have to... Practice and practice and practice. Whether you've played it before or not, you have to practice and practice it. And it was lucky for me. Again, that got me into the England team because that's how Glenn Hoddle was playing with three centre-halves. So actually, I was very fortunate that that change happened. But it just... And then you have to rely on the players... Again, you've got to train them and coach them. That's what Willie Donaghy was a master at, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. And that's what we've seen the development into the classroom side of educating players and and teaching them how to play, watching kind of historical games and kind of how modern teams are playing at the moment as well. So Willie had started to do that, but not in a classroom. He basically talked to you individually and schooled you individually in how to play that role, so that was a that was a huge change for me. But again, if you if you're working with good people, you can very quickly soak these things up. But that was the first time, really. At that, when We're probably looking at when did Joe come? Ninety four was that when he came to. So I've been playing ten years before really they started to adapt formations and put kind of extra responsibilities on players to understand a different position to play.
2: Like many things, it's easy to now look through the sort of modern prism of. of these sorts of discussions and and wonder how it was allowed to be that way for so long at the time we're exposed to so much global football now and we get the opportunity to see different types of football on on an almost daily basis that you you just obviously would always look to learn and adapt but going back to that point then you're in your mid-20s were players just compliant did they just get on with it Or, or was there any sense that we could be doing better
0: there were certain players. Everton, I can only talk about my time at Everton when, when the coaching kind of setup changed. There were a couple of players who kicked against it because they weren't in the team, or the way that we wanted to play didn't suit them. I think Vinny Samways was one. A great technical player, wonderful, but maybe physically. Wasn't going to be a dogs of war type of player, so clearly Joe would say, "You're a great player, but you don't really fit." And eventually, so obviously he would be unhappy because he's not playing. But you can see why he's not playing because Joe's saying, "Look, this is how I want to play. I think this is this is why I'm here. I make these choices. It's tough on you, but eventually it bore fruit. Obviously, we managed to stay up, and then we did well in '95. So it clearly worked. But certain players were unhappy because they didn't fit the system. But and again, I had to adapt a lot of my game in terms of physically, obviously we trained a lot more than we were doing double sessions. We used to go in the gym lifting weights. You had to get faster, fitter, stronger to be able to play. A wing back, you are covering enormous amounts of ground and every player, modern player, covers an enormous amount of ground regardless really of where you play these days. So the physical demands were what they worked on, I think, first. They probably knew they had experienced players like Dave Watson, Neville Southall. They knew they could adapt those players because they've been around a long time and they've... They're, they're open-minded as well. But the younger players, we needed to be fitter, so that's why the training Even was you'd so just intense.
1: Be doing physical work essentially is a massive part of what what your well, toned-down well, training. What, what I'm saying is, that. you can
0: do. It's not the amount of work that you do; it's the quality of your and specifically how you train. You can overtrain, and again, if you don't eat well, if you drink, it's gonna, comp- it's gonna, just it's pointless. You have to get everything in place, and that's what they said: is that we're gonna ask to, ask you to do these things, but when you go away, you know, don't eat badly, don't drink because it's going to then compromise you coming back we're asking you to do physically a lot of work and you won't be able to do it because you're not helping yourself so again you start to think well I've got to help myself and I I wanted to do it because you have a lot of trust in these people they have faith in you it's a two-way street and you saw physically the benefits I remember Glenn Hoddle saying to me when he when he saw me I'll say stripped off but I had a pair of shorts on and he said you must because again even then it wasn't maybe Usual for players to physically look like they do now. If you see players now, physically, they look fabulous, don't they, in terms of their muscle definition. That's what Willie was trying to, when he came into to Everton, when we started working with weights. Glenn Hoddle noticed it and said, well, players don't, so again, the cha- that was when the change was starting to happen, even an international you, coach. you, you tell your story just basically to say that you look great. Well, Glenn said I look great. <laughs> so We trust you Glenn. Know, we everyone, trust, we Glenn. trust Glenn. Which, 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 he picked me for England, so clearly the lad knows what he's doing. But he was So he noticed the difference. So again, and then he started asking, so what do you do? How many days a week do you go in the gym? What type of stuff do you do? It was all, again, they work backwards from the game and said right how do we want to play what kind of players do we need to play that way what kind of condition do those players need to be it seems common sense now and you work backwards and you structure
1: your training okay. to achieve that on a match you train to play right, so but back in the 80s it was you train Let's and then there's a game coming up have the week then this time around because you have mentioned about the fact that the week was rigid if you had a Saturday and a Saturday game you would, you would do the running on the Monday and then you would essentially just do very little because the, the team wasn't announced so now you're playing for Willie Donkey and Joe Royal at Everton how does that Monday to Friday work. If you've just had a Saturday game and you've got another Saturday game the following. Well, again, week. It's,
0: it's the science of it. It's all about recovery. So you, you play on a Saturday, you're in on a Sunday morning. Whereas in the you had Sunday off, and players used to go out on Saturday night and they're in the right state, recover your body. would if you've if been done something physical on a Saturday, then you go out drinking and eating badly. You're putting yourself again Chinese by food. Monday. China. Mm. But again, so that then, we're in on a Sunday morning. So we're in doing a warm down, stretches, assessing the injury situation. So again, you're in on a Sunday, which was a massive change for players. They, they just presume we we're going to have Sunday off. We had a Thursday off. But again, because we made the balance up, the recovery day, which again makes perfect sense on the Sunday. And then on the Monday, well, the, the team would be picked on a Thursday. So we'd already say, well, who are we playing on a Saturday? Who have we just played? Did that work well? Any injury problems? Then you start to assess. And so the training then is structured by who's available um, who are we playing? What are we looking to? Are we going to change? Are we going to play a four or a three? And you would start doing kind of 11 v 11. So you start, again, every aspect of it. Willie used to work with kind of the fullbacks and he'd work with the um, the wingers or he'd work with the central midfielders. So all, it would all be kind of compartmentalised, but then you'd all come together to work as a group, as a team, because clearly that's what you're going to do on a Saturday. But he, he kind of broke it all up to bring it all back together again. And again, a lot of it was just, just the simplest things. We used to play five-a-side kind of games but if, if you scored you got the ball back rather than you scored the opposition then took it out of their own net and came back at you if you scored you got your goalkeeper got the ball back and again it was all design- at the time I didn't see but it, again it's designed to switch you on when something happens you don't just go to sleep and say that's the end of it you got the ball back and for how quickly you realise as soon as you scored you weren't celebrating the goal you were getting back into position to get the ball back off your own goalkeeper and go again and it was all again psychologically it was all rolled into everything that we did and it is quite brilliant and again it takes a lot of planning and Willie used to say when I went off with England write down all the sessions that Glenn Hoddle does with you I want you to bring them back so I can look through them and he'll then assess how Glenn plans his week out for an international game and assess it and see whether there's elements of that that he can take so again the coaches are constantly kind of evolving as well even though they had it down to even back then as a fact that's why Everton was so successful so quickly because of what they brought in the players willingness to give themselves up to it and put the hard work in but then importantly we had players like Gary Speed and Nick Barnby brilliant professionals who Again, we're, we're ahead of the game in terms... They warmed up before we warmed up. So then what tended to happen is we as players used to go out as a group and warm up before Willie even started the warm-up. So again, now you're starting to see the players <laughs> self-regulating. Just, it's
1: so competitive.
0: <laughs> no, it's not. It's, not. it's, it's actually... rather Because I think back in the day, if you... I remember Steve Redmond who a play with a centre-half when I was a kid. And if you did or ask a question or did a little bit of extra training, it was as if you were trying a bit too hard. Look at you showing off Apple for teacher and all that type of stuff. But then at Everton, when you realised... To get anywhere, that is what you need to do. And when you've got players been as successful as Gary Speed and Nick Barnby and how physically good they are and how technically good they are, you have to put the work in. So again, and that then drew, you know, two or three would do it one day. Then it'd be three or four. And then basically, we'd all turn up half an hour before training started and be out ourselves. So again, the players are taking it on board and enjoying working hard. And then as a coach, you must be looking out the window of the, the coach's office thinking... I've got it. I've got it made here because these players can't wait to start training. With, was the
2: appetite, and I wonder whether it still is, to learn, and the desire to to train as hard as you possibly could to become as good as you possibly could, or, or was there a, a resistance to some of this stuff? Because it, it strikes me, though, so, not just physically, but training must have been mentally exhausting and sort of takes away some of the glamour of the job, doesn't it?
0: I don't think it was as much... Maybe today, if you're looking at Bielsa or the other modern coaches, the the but the players then, I presume all you've got to do is start the process. Once you start the process, players can take anything on board. It's just actually starting it and being consistent with it. Most players are just... Again, they, they just... I wasn't used to that when they came into Everton. Modern players, like when Bielsa turns up at Leeds, once he sets the demands in place, this is what we're doing, classroom for an hour and a half a day... And again, after, you, the thing is, after, after a couple of days, by the third day, you're walking into the classroom yourself. It's like kids, I think, once you're consistent with something that you do, and basically you've got to treat the players like that, that you just put this process in play. At first, it's like banging your head against a brick wall. The players forget or they, they hate it. But then when they see the benefits of how they're developing physically and mentally, that's when they're in the classroom before you even, even start talking to them. So is this sort of separating the wheat from the chaff kind of
2: stuff? You know, if you eat, natural talent is only going to get you so far. Application is, is an important it is. And, I, and I think
0: I was crying out for... Because throughout my career, I'd, I'd, people had told me what a good player I was. He'd had some knocks as well, both in football and at home. I was crying out for someone that had faith in me and they had huge faith in me. But then at that time, I did realise, obviously I was a little bit older, maybe 26, 27. I had to... This was my chance. And if if, if I kicked against this or didn't realise what it was... I, I, I'm the only person that's to, to, to blame for it because Willie and Joe were there saying you've got all the, all the, all the stuff that you need to be successful we're going to help you do that do you want to do that? So for me, I was crying out. That's what I've probably been waiting for all my career, with someone to say that. So I just lapped it up. And again, physically, in the space of a month, you see the difference in, in how you're playing. And, and you can you just say you're running past people, you're brushing people, you know what it's doing for you. And the team is successful as well. It's not a selfish pursuit. It's actually everybody. And once you get that, and that's what they were brilliant at as well, is getting everybody to work and be of the same mind. And that's what made us at Everton. We weren't absolutely brilliant, but we were very hard to beat because we were physically stronger, faster, and more together as a team than probably other sides. And that's why we did okay and others didn't. But that is basically, all that stuff is now... Every club, whether it be in the Championship or lower in the Premier League, this is this is this is basic now. This is absolutely what it is, and they're taking it to right. How can we squeeze another one or two percent out of it? Uh, going into the classroom, I feel needed to be done. And if they'd have done that, maybe Everton as well. It just we did enough, and we were, Willie Donickey was way ahead of the game in my opinion. Anyway, at that time, so he would be doing now what Bielsa is doing. That that would be the level of of application and, and coaching to the to, to the players. So much? Willie was basically doing what Bielsa is doing now back in the 90s, but on a slightly, slightly different level. So I appreciate that it's
1: often technology-led. It's hard to have meetings if you haven't yeah. got the, the, the footage to analyse because it's it, it was harder back in the 90s clearly, but how many meetings did you have and what kind of meetings were they and how close to the game did you have them? Well, we, had a lot of, we had a lot of team meetings but also I remember one actually
0: where Willie took us, I think it was at Goodison Park, took us over to Goodison one afternoon, we didn't say why we we're doing it, just saying we're all going over to Goodison, there's a, there's a video I want to show you and again, it, at that time, it was kind of when everything was starting to kind of snowball for us so we, again, we just, we just blindly take, it doesn't matter what it is, we're going to be there because Willie said that this is what we're doing and it, I think it was, a, was it Viali when he was, it was he, Juventus. Sean O'Reilly and he's closing down and leading the press. And I remember watching this and he was he wasn't just talking to Paul Rideout and Graham Stewart who are our front two and Duncan Ferguson. He was saying Look look what Viali's doing. Look at the work that he's doing off the ball. And if you look at modern strikers, that is basically what Aguero does now for City so well. And that's what he was saying. This is this is why he's special. But look at what the team does in behind him. They don't let him go on his own. As a team, as I was talking about that togetherness, we all go. When Viali goes, we all go. And that's what he wanted to point out. And it wasn't just Viali, it was the team's reaction to someone starting the closing down. And that's something that just with you saying it there about what what do we do, what, what kind of with videos will be shown. That just occurred to me, but now it makes perfect sense. So again, Willy was way ahead of the game because that's what modern football is all about, with strikers leading the press. And we, we did that back in, we're looking at 94. So Viali was already doing it, so he was way ahead of his time. But maybe Italian football... Were they approaching things presumably differently? Were they playing differently? Was that why they were successful compared to maybe English clubs at that time? But it was all about one individual sparking what a team can do to make life hard for the
1: opposition. So you can, you can sit in those meetings and you can l- learn kind of like a new aspect of the philosophy that is the part of the game that, that, that Willie and, and Joe are trying to teach you. What about things like set pieces? Mm-hmm. Um, because you'll see, uh, particularly on that All or Nothing documentary for Manchester City, you will see Mikel Arteta and, and Pep Guardiola running a session which has them in their their tiered seating, all like they're in a lecture theatre. Well, yeah. it is a lecture theatre. Yeah. And they are picking out, they are circling, and appreciate, again, the technological advances make this a lot easier, but they are saying, you go there, you go there, you go there. Mm-hmm. If this corner comes in like this, we need to make sure that we are doing this, that, and the other. Was there ever any video analysis to back that kind of thing up? Or was the Friday always traditionally doing your attacking and defending set pieces and can, you would yeah. just do it on the field?
0: I, I can't remember us ever really, after a good game or a bad game, sitting down and, and watching the game and assessing it. That's probably the one thing that was because I presume they will do that. At the time, if you had a bad game and you got beaten 4-0, it tended to be, if you, it was painful if you were to sit down and pick people out. But that, that is what you need to do. And again, maybe that has changed as well. And now they're doing the analysis, win, lose, or draw. If you make a mistake, you make a mistake. Whether they do it in front of everybody else or they'll take a fullback and say, you know, you weren't round on the cover. We'll do that with you. Everyone knows what's happened, but we're not going to make it embarrassing for you. But actually, in many ways, that is the only way to learn because it's all about doing the right thing for your teammates as well. And saying, actually, Steve, as probably is true, you weren't round on the cover. They were telling you there's to do this because the centre-halves need you to do this. You're your midfield you goalkeeper. So actually, then you've got the responsibility. So you're not... In a way, with Joe and Willie, they were never looking to... Even if they did that, they wouldn't have embarrassed. They'd have done it privately and, and spoken to you, good or bad. And that's what they did. They tended to work with you individually uh, and, and not kind of embarrass you in public. And I'm sure, with all the technology that's available now, it would be amazing. Even now with Willie Donicky, the age that he is, if you said to him, you can have anything you want and you can train in any way that you want, he would... There's just it's incredible what, what he'd be able to do. But actually, going back to set pieces, I, I've talked about this before, I used to take a lot and practice a lot, and we basically didn't need to do too much kind of, this is where you need to be, because we had we made it really simple. I was What I was looking to do in swingers, out swingers, attack certain areas, Paul Rydell, Duncan Ferguson, Dave Watson. It was very straightforward, and actually making it that simple, and my delivery, if that's not right, nothing can actually happen anyway. So Willie went back to saying, I know those three are going to make those runs, we're trusting you to put the ball right on the money or as close as damn it. So actually the onus is on you, the responsibility is to practice and practice and practice until you, because if you don't get it right, it's pointless anybody making any runs anywhere. So actually we didn't need that kind of analysis because we did the same thing. But it's, if I put the ball in and those three run and jump, defensively, that is the last thing you want playing against those players. So actually, let's just keep
1: doing what defences hate. And that, that, that's all we did. You've talked about preparing, generally speaking, for uh, any given match. But what about preparing for a specific match? One, perhaps, where you have a little bit more time in which to prepare. So the 1995 FA Cup final, for example... Mm-hmm when you you knew the opposition, you knew it was a, a, a win or bust kind of game, and you had some time, perhaps, to think about how best to prepare for that match, given its significance, given the opposition. So what was that week, or even more, like and and how did it change, bearing in mind the magnitude of the game and your particular opponent? Well, this is the problem
0: because at that time, clearly Everton weren't playing games of that magnitude. So I, I get the feeling that Willie and Joe would have said, look, if we start talking too much about Man United, our own team is going to get beaten down because we're playing Man United at Wembley. We didn't talk about, we knew what team they were going to play, or roughly. All we were bothered about is is how we play. And we've been doing it all season long. So actually... The time in between the semi-final and final was time that we really didn't need because you're just trying to get through that time to get to the game because the plan was in place. We're not going to change it for a cup final. We're going to stick to what we do best. So actually, the time in between didn't help. We weren't going to look in any more detail at Man United because we know what they're all about. We know what their players are all about. We knew what team was going to be playing because they picked it early and we'd done what we usually would do for um, a, a regular season game. But obviously, with it being a cup final, it's more the mental side of it. And the fact a lot of our players hadn't been in that position before. Neville Southall clearly had, but a lot of us were all, it's all new to us. So what they clearly didn't want to do was make it kind of a, to be overawed by the occasion. So actually they just played it down and we tried to, and Willie certainly tried to just treat it as best we could. We used to have these, uh, Goodison before uh, a regular season game, these daft kind of little games of, not head tennis, but in the, basically in the shower room. So, there was no net or anything, there was just a line, and there was kind of 2v2, two two. and this is what we always did. And again, for Willie, it was getting you kind of a little bit angry, but getting you sharp and ready mentally and physically to go and play. So, at Wembley, we did the same thing. It's all changed now, the dressing rooms have changed, but there was a big area. So, Willie did the same thing. Come on, we're going in here, we're going to play our little game of, of tippy tappy in there, because that's what we And again, they were trying to just diffuse the, the, the worries about. But then you walk out, and it's Wembley, and there's that many people there. And, but they were trying to just get through the time before you make that walk and step onto the pitch, because. I was a worrier. I was rooming with Matt Jackson at the time as well and we both didn't sleep the night before because we're playing in a cup final. So what clearly the coaching staff were trying to do was mentally get you on the pitch and then they knew well what we'd done all season long and what we've been doing the last few days, you'd be fine. It's get the, get the game started. It's the worry in between and it's all down to the fact that we simply hadn't experienced it before. So again, that's very good coaching and it's, it's psychological assessment of players thinking, well, Neville will be right because he's been through big cup finals before but these other seven or eight we need to handle them differently and again it's that psychology man management which is
1: which is which is so important it's quite interesting because when when manchester united played barcelona in the second of the two champions league finals the second time around they had, they wanted to learn from what had happened in 2009 it was the same barcelona the same manager roughly speaking it was the same manchester united they were without ronaldo but that was it and so they spent Two weeks, basically, preparing for Barcelona. They had a shadow team that played like Barcelona and they worked on it, they worked on it, they worked on it. This they, is obviously
0: 1995 to 2000 and whatever. 11. So again, the the, the approach and, but
1: they, is they, automatically going to be different. They'd already won the league, so they, they kind of didn't bother about the last preparing for the last... Um, League game. I think it, Steve, can you remember? Was it at Hull? I think it was at Hull. Was it in the 2011 game? And they basically just played a shadow team for that. And they, yeah, you're they, confusing
2: they, me with somebody with a functioning
1: memory. Right. Okay. Fine. Well, it was. <laughs> I'm sure we both went to that Hull game. Oh, I'm sure we did. But I'm sure that, it was a great journey. <laughs> a wonderful time. There was such a plan in place that they worked on it for two weeks, and they they played Hernandez. And they wanted Hernandez to 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 put pressure on the goalkeeper and wanted to press the the, the split. Full, uh, split centre-back, side to side, because they obviously wanted to play out from the back. So they worked on it, and they worked on it, and they worked on it. If you wor- watch the first five minutes of that game in 2011 at Wembley, that Champions League final, it was working. Yeah. It put Barcelona under pressure. Now, Barcelona, as has happened under Pep Guardiola, but also since, they figured it out. They figured out a way of doing that. And also, the other team needed to be perfect to be able to make that work. But he could afford. So Alex Fogues could have afford at that time to put down two weeks' worth of training ahead of a match, specifically targeted at that game and that opponent. Now, they had had them in 2009, so they played them previously. You played Manchester United in the league twice before the 1995 FA Cup final. But what's interesting is that you were so sure of your preparation that you didn't need to change. Mm-hmm. Or maybe just Manchester United weren't as good as Barcelona were in 2011, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, because
0: at that time, what, what we basically did as a, as a team was the first thing we did was stop the opposition playing. It wasn't necessarily, well, we, we've got to be the, the best team here. We're not the best team. We know we're not the best team. So we make we, we stopped the best team from playing. And then we do have some, we did have some very good players, Graham Stewart, Anders Limpo. We had some very good players that eventually saw us through, but why would you change something that's clearly worked in, especially if you're playing against better opposition? Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't change anything. Why on earth would you change your formation, change your personnel, change your the the the, the training process up to that? That's when it's even more important that you don't check because players, as soon as you start changing it, will think this is different, and then maybe psychologically you go into the game thinking differently. This is not quite, and then you're slightly not set up correct. So they they were so even I remember that even the suits that we had, that we we looked dreadful. The suits that we, but again, it was we're not tourists. We're going there, and that was Willie's mantra we are not tourists we're not going there to take pictures we're there to win so to win we need to do everything to help ourselves to play the best that we possibly can and we try and nullify the opposition but we know what they're going to do so we're not going to change anything to to try and cater for them we just we just work them incredibly hard and, and hope and they did have a bit of an off day Neville Southall made some great saves United missed some chances as well. We took the one that came along. So you need a bit of luck as well, but we did everything we could leading up to the game and in the game to give ourselves the best chance of of winning. We could easily have lost it if United had taken their chances.
2: But throwing it forward, if that kind of match-up came around for a cup final again now, Mm -hmm. I wonder whether Manchester United's analysis would be to, to cut off what, weapons Everton yeah. might have had so actually you would have needed to have found a way to adapt ahead of that mm-hmm. cup final As football advanced so quickly that you can look back at 1995 and say well we could just go into a cup final and say we're just going to do what we, we would have done anyway whereas now you might, well you'd have to be thinking Manchester United they're not going to leave cans of beans lying around for Chinch to open Absolutely. so we're going to have to find out a, a new way of, of getting the better of them.
1: Well there is another big game coming up uh, this weekend if you are listening contemporaneously and Rory as we know, isn't here. But that doesn't mean he hasn't been busy. Last week, our intrepid New York Times soccer correspondent went to Marbella, which sounds like he hasn't been busy at all. But the reason was to see Liverpool as they enjoyed a little training camp ahead of the Champions League final. The piece that he's written about that will be in the New York Times on Thursday, he thinks, and was supposed to be about how you use a much longer period of time than is customary to prepare for a match, even down to how you structure training sessions, for example. If in the intervening period between his visit and his writing it has changed, you can only Blame him and not us. So before he went off this week on a little break before heading to Madrid, we asked him about what he learned in a different part of Spain.
3: Well, I learned that clubs don't really like talking about their, the way they structure their training because <laughs> nice they, want to, try. they want to keep it secret and don't want to alert their opposition. That's mainly what I learned. Um, we well, th-
2: didn't get starting lineup and formation.
3: No, unfortunately not, or, the, or a kind of a, a blueprint of what they were doing all week and the following week. The they were the, there's a little bit a little bit of what I think counts as. Um, State secrets, um, which I understand to an extent. What What interested me is that I think it's a really unusual situation for a team to have a whole three weeks. It does feel as though the Premier League finished quite early, and the Champions League final is 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 not unusually late. But it, it is, the Champions League final is now much later than it yes, used to it, be.
1: Yes, it feels like the gap between the two in a non-tournament uh, year is very yes
3: big. I think there's a, there's a fairly obvious psychological interest there. Like, how do you how how do the players the staff cope when they have 3 weeks with this huge event looming at the end of it is that frustrating is it does it put your nerves on edge can you take your mind off it? Everyone says, oh, you try not to think about it, but how do
1: you try not to but think but about it? But it's a it? luxury, a huge luxury, bearing in mind the biggest game of the season has the most amount of time to prepare well, for it so when that... they complain about playing every three days throughout the rest of the season. I went to Marbella expecting to
3: find out that Liverpool had taken certain measures, and I could have easily, just as easily and just as validly done this with Spurs, although they're, they're, they've done slightly different things in terms of how they've spent their time that they've had available. I was expecting to go to find them saying... It's not ideal because the players have had a few days off. They're at the end of a long season. Your body almost kind of tips into holiday mode without you really noticing it. They we, we've got to kind of maintain them at peak fitness for another two another two weeks. We've got to rebuild them from their time off. I was expecting them to say that it was quite. It's the fitness side of it is quite complicated. The, preparing for the game is complicated because it's Spurs they're, because they're both really really good teams because they they know each other quite well. I think that probably adds a, an extra layer of complication because. Someone's going to try and do something different, and if you try and do something different, it might work brilliantly, but it might fail um so there's all those complications but from the from the fitness point of view what's what really surprised me is that they see it mainly as an opportunity because it's it is a like Hugh says it's a rare privilege to have this long to to build up your fitness for one game and i'm sure Spurs who will train in a different way and their methods will be slightly different, but I'm sure Spurs will see it exactly the same way, that they will think this is, you know, we've had a long season, now we get a bit of a break so the players can rest, we can get all of that kind of rust, all that kind of fatigue out of their legs and then we can we can build up to this incredible event and we can hit it, hit the ground running, be at absolute peak fitness and do everything we want to do. And I think that what struck me was that Liverpool see, that, see this not as a, to me, it looks like an unusual and less than ideal situation. I would have thought the players would have rather had a week to prepare, maybe two weeks. And it, what, what's really interesting, and whether what, I have not yet written the, the article, and whether whether it will reflect this, I don't know. Whether I'll be able to kind of get what is a kind of incoherent thought into words. But it, from a coach's point of view, it did make me wonder: Does the football kind of get in the way? Does having to play is having to play games a bit? a bit annoying and if you, think, if you think about it coaches spend a lot of time especially in England complaining about how they don't have any time to, to actually work because there's games all the time so from that point of view it's brilliant it must be brilliant for, for both Klopp and Pochettino to have three weeks because you get to they will get to do whatever they like whatever they, they would ideally do for every game they've got time to do it it's fantastic and they, the, the fact that they're doing it at the end of the season Means that the players have built up their fitness and their resistance over the course of an entire season, which should mean that they are that they are all are they kind of don't need to do a lot of kind of they don't need to be run again because they don't they don't need to be worked back to fitness because their fitness will be of such a level that you're not going to lose it because you've had a few days off. So it struck me it was really interesting that they they see this as a as an opportunity and I wonder from a coach's point of view whether it is the ideal situation for both again for both teams that. you you don't have to worry about playing any football matches in between
2: so should we be getting the most perfect Champions League final imaginable because it's two English teams who've both had the same amount of time to prepare
3: so I think there is an evenness to it that that should be good for the Champions League final it should mean that it is a the Spurs certainly have looked pretty tired since sort of mid to late February and I think Liverpool I I think that those last few games the two Barcelona games Wolves and Newcastle took a lot out of them. I think they, if it had been the week after, I think you might have seen a very tired Champions League final. Um, from a fitness point of view, they they should all be kind of on it. You might, th- we are recording this in the past, Then there might have been injuries in training. You can always get injuries in training. Um, I'm slightly surprised that no one's ar- arranged a friendly. Although I guess what happened to Loftus-Cheek in the Chelsea friendly in, in the US maybe illustrates why no to arrange the friendly. There
2: was talk of them playing behind closed doors reasonably competitive games between, you know, as competitive as they could be on a training ground. Yeah, I
3: think they'll, they'll both, I'm sure they will both play sort of games between a first team and a reserve team or they might, they might play their academy, one of the academy teams or something. I'm sure they will both do that just to give them some semblance of competitive action. My worry is, and it's not something that was borne out by my reporting, but my worry is that three weeks is quite a long time, and that ru- that there will be a degree of rustiness. And I think the problem with with Liverpool and Spurs in particular is that they they're both they're not similar sides. Pochettino certainly wouldn't think that he, he is a similar type of coach to Klopp. Don't know whether Klopp thinks he's a similar type of coach to Pochettino. But they both play this really quite intense style, quite a high pressing style. They're, you know, they they run they run around a lot. I wonder whether if there's a if you take the combination of slight rustiness they've not played a game for, for almost you know for getting on for a month and they're all at the in this peak fitness condition where where they've been able to build their fitness up to exactly where it needs to be whether you might get a uh, a final that's quite high on energy but not necessarily high on absolute razor sharp quality that would be my instinct
2: I'm already looking out for the fact that Virgil van Dijk might have forgotten how to head the ball <laughs> yeah. or Lucas is, funny comes that, out with his boots on the wrong feet You know, It's funny
3: that if you, if, you, if you watch pre-season games they've often only had a, a month or so off and maybe a couple of weeks training so it is, it's a much longer gap but there is, a rusty, there is a rustiness that sets in immediately players do need to get their touch back
1: How similar is this to the the, the years where you have tournaments and you have training camps prior to a major tournament and teams will go away and they'll they'll kind of slack off and they'll rebuild to a certain extent because the opening games of tournaments are often a little bit yeah. even though you're high on fitness because you've had loads of time off and you've been able to ramp it back up some of those opening group games at the world cup or a european championship or whatever are not particularly good because you have had so much time not going through the routines of match play but you I have just been going through the non match play routines i guess the i guess <laughs> the default.
3: i guess the difference there is that um that Those teams don't know each other
1: that well, so it's, it's it's basically a. So it's not cagey. You're saying it won't be cagey for that. It might be not to a hundred miles an hour in two seconds. Yeah. but that might not necessarily be just, the best I, to watch. I mean,
3: I, might, I could be completely wrong. And certainly, from what Liverpool said, and I'm sure Spurs would say the same thing. They're not worried about rustiness. They're not worried about the players needing to feel their way into the game, or or there being a little bit of kind of unease about about being thrown into such a high pressure environment. But it is odd because they are they've had three weeks of well, you know, a few days off, then a couple of weeks of training with their teammates and Liverpool have been away. I think Spurs haven't gone away. And then you have to play the most intensely pressurised game you will play in your career for, for the vast majority of them. That is an unusual situation to be in. The fact that they know each other so well that the methods and stuff are all the same should stave off that first that opening group game uh, effect.
1: Yeah, I'm intrigued about them knowing each other so well. So Liverpool have um, beaten them twice, both 2-1 uh, this season in the league. And they will be able to not only spend three weeks these two teams uh, preparing for a team that they know well, but preparing for a team they have recent memory of playing against. Yep. And we've often talked about of the, uh, the familiarity breeding contempt in terms of what happens towards the end of a, a, a series of games between two teams where either a team figures them out, uh, figures another team out, or, or they cancel each other out because they' figured mm-hmm. each other out. So for example, last season, Liverpool played city in April two or three times very close together um, City played Spurs two or three times very close three together times in, 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 in ten, ten days. days and yeah. by the end of that the third one was a little bit after the Lord Mayor's show mm. uh, in the league game um, at the Etihad so what? Wh- how will that change the preparation that they would normally do for a team like for example what Liverpool have done last year against Real Madrid because they they got footage yes, but they've got footage of them playing them instead yeah. of footage of the team playing against somebody else. I, I
3: guess I mean it, I guess it, again this <laughs> this 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 came under the under the banner of things Liverpool didn't want to talk about. But the I guess it makes the analysts' jobs maybe easier in some senses. Does does the players will know roughly what to expect from the Spurs in players as individuals? They will have played them all, not just twice this season, but they'll have, they'll have come across them a lot. You know, they'll they're, they're not no, going to reinvent the wheel. Are it's they? not like if it had been Ajax. Liverpool would have had to sort of go into in depth about Donny Van der Beek's movement and how he controls the ball, what he tends to do when he controls the ball on one foot and rather than the other, because the players will instinctively know a little bit more about their opponents. Again, true on both sides. What What's really interesting about the the, the last two games at Anfield, in particular, is that they have both been so Liverpool won two one this season and drew two all the year before. I think Liverpool's record against Spurs under Klopp is pretty good. Is my Memory. They got smashed last year, didn't they? Yeah, they Wembley. lost at Wembley
1: 4-1, but other than that... I don't I think that's the only time they've lost. They have not lost since 2012, November 2012. So, yeah, obviously pre-Klopp. So, what? but what was interesting about particularly the game at
3: Anfield this year is that Spurs in the second half, Pochettino changed his system and Spurs played brilliantly for half an hour. And then, and then I think Klopp brought Fabinho on and Liverpool got a bit more control and they got that really lucky winner. But Spurs certainly then, I think, played... As well as I've seen an awaiting play against Klopp's Liverpool for a lot for a long, long time, and that that came because Pochettino switched it around, and I think something similar happened at Anfield last year. the other game I was at. I wasn't at either of the games at Wembley when Liverpool were on top. Pochettino made a change. Liverpool couldn't get couldn't get to grips with it, and Spurs probably should have won the game, and in the end got a late penalty to draw two up. So what's what's interesting is that I think Klopp will play. From Liverpool's point of view, it's kind of it's relatively straightforward. I think Liverpool will go and be Liverpool, and that's what they do. Klopp isn't going to suddenly switch the three at the back or try and tactically outfox Pochettino, but Pochettino will know that he has previously, although he's not beaten Liverpool at Anfield, he has previously done something different which has given Liverpool a problem, and even though it's not necessarily got the right result, that that is down basically to look. If Moussa Sissoko goes through and scores at Anfield in March, then then. Spurs win that game. Liverpool don't have a title race, so that gives Pochettino an interesting question as to whether what and Spurs are much more flexible in, in terms of how they play. What I will be, what, what I've been trying to know is how much over the last couple of weeks Pochettino has been experimenting with different systems, so that at some point in the game Spurs can change. But then I suppose this is where the familiarity becomes relevant, because Liverpool there's a limit to how many different ways Pochettino can play. He's not going to suddenly go. I don't know, three three four or something, or, or put Moussa Sissoko in goal, there's a limit to what he will do. I don't know, he's rangy. He's rangy, and he had a great season, so he, he, confidence will be sky high. <laughs> but there's a, lim- there's a limited number of ways that any manager is going to change their team around in the course of a game, because you don't want to, uh, to under-familiarise your team with your own tactics. So that's what, that makes it really interesting as well. That, but again, Spurs will have had a lot of time. Before the Anfield game, they'd have had... Two or three days, probably at most, to. Although it was after an international break, so they might have had a little bit more time to do it. Um, a few, they'll have had a few days to work on each system with Pochettino thinking in the back of his mind, I, "I can change this, and we can flip between the two, and it'll confuse Liverpool." He's had three weeks to do it this time. That's perfect. That's exactly what he needed.
2: It's a fascinating element of this sort of all English Champions League final. Not just that they know each other so well, but they've had so long to prepare. We'd have had been having very different conversations if it had been. Barcelona or Bayern Munich playing an English team in the Champions League final because they both play in their domestic cup finals the week before. So yeah. there would have been a completely different balance, wouldn't there? It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an added layer of, of intrigue that perhaps not too many people were aware of.
1: Rory, we look forward to your piece. We also look forward to a new newsletter yeah. that we would like to plug before we send you on your way a week ago. What follows is a plug. Uh, we are launching a, a newsletter,
3: a soccer newsletter brought to you by me. <laughs> and my thoughts and what I'm doing. Just if you just want to keep track of me, really, just want to sort of think what's Rory thinking about. Where is he? Does he has he thought of any good jokes? Um, what's what's interesting and what what's piquing his curiosity? We are launching a newsletter. I should really, for an effective plug, have some sort of web address that you can go to. I don't. Go to nytimes.com backslash or possibly forward slash. Not sure. which Depending is. on which side of the Atlantic you are. Uh, slash sports sports it'll be there you'll find it it's on the website or the app the app's very good you should all subscribe
1: Rory um, where will you be when this reaches people's it, ears it depends
3: where, where, when you're listening to it I think I might have either just come back from France or I might be on my way to Madrid well there we go he's jet setting a sensible person would have gone straight from France to Madrid but a sensible person doesn't buy a Spaniel
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Rory as they say in Madrid a tout à l'heure zain Das Daniel, <laughs> Some excellent Spanish uh, from Rory Smith. Do check out that newsletter. We are very good at plugging things that we are involved in. Uh, so, Chinch, just to round off our conversation, having been informed by Rory's intrepid reporting uh, out in Marbella, it's a strange circumstance, one that I doubt you ever had, having three weeks to prepare for a big game. And as Rory said then, o- often the football gets in the way... Because that's so much time. So do you think they've been on the training pitch a lot, in the classroom a lot, they would have had an opportunity to really dissect Spurs down to the nth degree? That that has to be too I know it will be very different
0: for for modern players and they would probably be able to fill that time a little bit more, but three weeks has to be far too long. Like Rory said there maybe a week. I spoke to Dean Smith ahead of the championship playoff final Aston Villa against Derby 12 days between the second leg of the semi-final and the final and he's he was saying I needed to lose 5 or 6 days because it's it's just far too long because End of a season. All we're doing is keeping the players ticking over. We've played the opposition twice. We've we've seen what they've done in the semi final, So we've, we we kind of tailor a little bit, do a bit of work on. If they do that, we do that. But he said that only takes so much time, and then we're just kicking our heels. So they tend to go away. I think both clubs went away for five or six days probably doing a little bit of training, but certainly nothing intense, and actually just spending time relaxing and trying to get through the hours before the real preparations, maybe three or four days before, then you start to kind of, kind of ramp it up a little bit so the players are really firing come, come the final. But three weeks, I think for any any, any team sport, I mean even individual sport, that, that's a long time to get the balance between getting some rest and being prepared, because I just feel that's far too long. I mean, if Dean needs to lose five or six days, has he tried Carling Special Brew? Um, I'm not sure that's on their their training program. I can like I can always now. I can always ask him and say, have you thought about that? Yeah, it might work for him. Uh, if you'd had three weeks to
2: prepare solely for a game, who were you most likely to have come to blows with? It was Ray Atavell at the club.
0: Anyway, no, we, there's no way we'd have been. We'd have they'd have worked something out. We'd have gone away. You, in three weeks, you probably would have done six days of proper training and it really that's kind of to ramping it up towards the end so you spend a lot of time together do a lot of different things maybe go away because there is no fitness work you really need to do because you're as fit as you're ever going to be it's mainly if people have had a few injuries you want to make sure they're all cleared up and again you're not going to go hell for leather to exacerbate injuries so yeah I think you try and lose you probably would lose maybe 14 of those 21 days And and kind of
1: ramp it up towards the end. Again, some sort of six point five percent lager will probably help you out with that. Mm, But mm. it's probably helped both Liverpool and Spurs with Harry Kane and Roberto Firmino both having an opportunity, an extra opportunity to 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 drink heavily. Oh no, to get fit, to 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 get fit. fit. Okay, yeah. Um, And Steve beautifully brought up our our final point in this conversation, which is about fights. So you would (laughs) have you would have had. People who were gunning for your position, you would have had uh, on occasion you were gunning for their position. How did that affect the relationship that you had uh, with players? And and those training ground bust-ups that are often glamorised a little, I imagine, are quite regular, but only because you are playing a contact sport. I've
0: never had a fight. I actually had a few disagreements with uh, Messrs Neville and, and Beckham on the pitch uh, which kind of spilled over into the uh, into the corridors around the dressing room, but not. Okay, we don't talk about that. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not I'm not that type. of... I, I can't remember myself having squared up or. But there, there are times when yeah, because this is this is a testosterone fueled business. You, these are these I are fine tell. physical specimens and Neville Southall. <laughs> so you're going to get, but we. The thing is, at Everton, there was so much respect between the players as well. That, and actually, the, the kind of the starting eleven was roughly set in stone. And it, it, we didn't sense—I can't remember too many problems. Maybe my early days at Man City. I remember, I think Nigel Johnson, who was a centre half there. And I think it tended to be that there might be kind of problems between—they might have played against each other at different clubs, and something had happened. There might have been an elbow thrown in a certain game, and that when they came to play for the same club there was problems there as well. But actually that worked in reverse with John Newsom and, and Barry Horne who had a, at my birthday party, You've had a bit, I told, told story. that story. Had told a bit, the and story. then when they were and buddies, when they came to play for each other at Sheffield Wednesday, I thought it was going to be World War Three, and they went completely the other way. So actually at, at Everton at that time, there was, it, you wanted it to be sharp and aggressive but within reason. And again, coaches, the responsibilities on the players as well to, to kind of self-regulate. Of course they, they want you to do it properly and we always trained as we played, you didn't go through the motions, you did train. So there were, you know, people's legs were taken away at times, but ultimately we knew it's because how we were being asked to train. It wasn't because I was looking to injure somebody so I could maybe play. Why would you want to do that? So it's a balance that you have to strike, but Everton were lucky and and Joe and Willie were lucky. They had some really good characters, senior pros as well, that if it did get a little bit silly, the players, Dave Watson or, or Barry or Neville would just keep a lid on it but it didn't it didn't tend to it didn't tend to happen at all but I know other clubs especially when I was younger the senior it was a bit more of a an alpha male kind of situation back then and it was kind of showing who's boss whereas that tended to kind of fall away later on in my career and everybody realized that you know how we were training why it was down to the coaches and we all had to be responsible
1: well suitably after you hint at a previous soccer story it is time for us uh, to finish with this. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is what Andy tells his tev- plague days with all adult behaviour and libel worthy details removed.
0: Well, this is a, a nice little story if you're an Aston Villa fan. If you're a Derby fan, not so good. The, the recent championship playoff final, Aston Villa 2, Derby 1. I've, I've met Jack Grealish a, a few times during the course of last season and this season. And there's been a huge development in him. He's been given the captaincy at Aston Villa, huge responsibility for him. And there's been a definite change in him. I saw him in the in the the Wembley around the, the, the dressing rooms. There was there were some some great and good people in there. Frank Lampard, obviously, Derby manager. Didier Drogba was there with his son, who looked like Didier Drogba. And somebody actually said to me, "Who's that guy with Didier Drogba? Who looks really like him." I said. That's his son. Oh, and they hadn't realised. Anyway, that's a side issue. The mystery so, of genetics. Yes, and, and, and all the other luminaries that were down there. Prince William, did he come? I don't think he did come down. If he'd known I was down there, he probably would have done. But I managed to speak to Jack as he was going out to take a look at the pitch. And I, and I said, how many of your family are coming today? Because he's a Boyhood Villa fan. And he said, 60. <laughs> 60 of his family. And I said, how you get? He said, oh, I've had to buy a box because there's so many of them that I can't get tickets for them all. And I said, you know what? This, is, this must be destiny. This, that, I've never heard of that many friends and family coming to a game. I think I, even, even hangers-on in my career had to be paid to come and watch me play. <laughs> so 60 people. I said, you're captain of Villa. You've got 60 of your friends and family. Dest- you're going to lift that trophy today. And he said, no, 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 I can't think like that. I can't think like that. Lo and behold, they, they win. He's the guy that wins the, uh, lifts the trophy. But did you see what happened when the, the trophy lift occurred? When the trophy got bashed into his face and it split his eye open. Genuinely, it, split, and it looked like it needed stitches. And he was, he was getting interviewed after the game and he had a pad on his, his eye. So as I came around after doing the commentary on the game, I went onto the pitch to say, and he said to me, you, you said it was going to happen, didn't you? I said, I told you. One of the few times ever <laughs> in my career, I predicted that something would happen for the good. And he, and he actually, that's the first thing he said to me. He said, you said it was going to happen today, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And But he, he he's such a lovely lad and it's an incredible story. And it's just there's very few players. I'm trying to do it now is try and get to know kind Of the, the humans behind the players and, and find their backstories, and but to see you know that many people there, I, I did think this is this is this got to be written, this it must be scripted. I think he actually said something like that when he, he did lift the trophy, but he'll have that scar above his eye. That. What but a great that will war be that's it. So, where did you get that from when we when I lifted the trophy as Villa captain? And it was it's just great, and it's it's just good to see someone who's been influenced a lot by Dean Smith and John Terry's had a big part to play in his his development and he was a player talk about going to the premier league going to tottenham it didn't quite work. how he's changed and matured and clearly getting to know me I'm don't have I had an, I'd have to say I've had an influence on him <laughs> and did I did I push spur him on in that final it didn't wasn't the fact he was a boyhood villa fan wasn't the fact there was 95,000 people there well half of them screaming Jack Grealish you're great it was the fact I said to him this is written you're going to lift that trophy and he looked to me even though he said no he it, it, it had that glint in his eye so
1: no no, no. he had a gas above a
0: gash. no that was <laughs> later this was before the gate he, he must have realized and that when he said to me I just thought it was great because I don't really know an awful lot of, of kind of the, the we're trying to do this because we're learning an awful lot it's good to kind of get the the human aspect of this as well but 60 people I, well, I was at the cup final there was about four and even I didn't know
2: three of them well isn't isn't the captain responsible for distributing tickets to friends and family for the entire squad I mean I, I there's a little bit of scald oh, going on there isn't there we People, have a
1: total like, allocation of six no yeah, wonder he,
0: Connor Horahan was looking up for his friends and family and there was no but just, just empty seats
1: just it was Grealishes everywhere
0: <laughs> they'd be like
2: Jack have you got those tickets for my parents oh sorry no no all the tickets have gone
0: no but it's just, it's just again it's a lovely lad and again it's hard if you're a Derby fan but it's just again to see to have seen him last season when they lost to Fulham and then to see him there again and I did think it's, it's very rare because you know what my predictions are like my predictions are Terrible. truly awful so again to, I, I was right even though I did say the same thing to the Derby
1: captain <laughs> If you have a soccer story, true or not, please send them to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. In the case of a chinch-shaped hole in an upcoming episode. You can also get in touch via Twitter or Facebook. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, to Andy and a bit of Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. And I just remembered I do have another
0: story from the Championship Playoff Final. Concerning the touchscreen, uh, remind me, Which remind I me of Which is a that. tease for a it's, future episode. Uh, it's, it's an interesting one, that one. I'm imagining when he saw Grealish
2: after the game and uh, Jack Grealish just said to Chinch, he predicted it was going to happen. Thanks very much. And Andy just putting his arm around Jack Grealish and saying, that's what makes me such a terrific pundit,
0: son. Yes, I, don't, I don't think he actually realises who I am and that I am actually a p- <laughs> I'm not sure who he thinks I yes. am, but he, just he sees me a lot. He might think I'm a steward Some or sort something. Of weird fairy godmother. I, I don't know who, he, I'm not sure he knows who I am.